Good morning. Thank you, worship team. That was awesome. If we did that chorus three more times, we could probably skip the sermon, but no such luck. Um, you know, I'm often led uh, to, since I've become a Christian, since I've started studying the Word more, since I've uh, tried to grow as a Christian and as a teacher, especially at camp, I've really worked to try to find the sacred in the secular. And one place that you can find it, and I found the, the secular part of it before I found the sacred part of it, was when I first came over to Kansas City in 1988, I moved over here to find a job. I was only seven at the time, don't judge. Um, <laughs> but I came over here to find my job, and, and I, and I came, settled in the Kansas City area, and the, the company I worked for um, subscribed to a couple papers. I think it was the Kansas City Star and one or two others. Um, and the, the comic strips of the time, um, I, I, was, I, was, I, had to, I read them every, every break because I was looking for apartments or places to live and things like that. And I got drawn to the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. It's written by Bill Watterson, who's a literary and artistic genius. Um, it was about a, the main character was a six-year-old boy who was very intelligent, but he was really troublesome to authority figures like teachers and parents and things like that. He was an only child, and his best friend was a stuffed tiger. And the, 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 what made the comic so fun, and his name was Hobbes, and what made that so fun was that when no one was around, the tiger became a hum, became, had human traits. It would walk and talk with Calvin. And they were both very philosophical and very cynical. And so this, and this, this six-year-old hated school. He, he often the, the, the artist would, the, Bill Watterson would, would make school look like a prison and a dungeon and he was chained to his desk and things like that. He hated school and, and he hated anything he had to do. And he lived for his weekends and he lived for summer. And so the, the, and in the comic strip, I'd, I wanted to put it up, but we can't because of license. But the strip I remember was uh, he's running out the door. The sun's just rising over the horizon. It's a summer morning. He's got a flag on his shoulder and a stuffed tiger under his arm and, he's, and a pith helmet on. And he's running to the, to the woods. And his mother's standing on the porch drinking a cup of coffee. It's obviously early. She's holding a paper under her arm. She's in her bathrobe. Her hair's messed up. Her eyes are squinting. And she says, just once, and he's going, yeah, I'm running toward the woods. And she goes, just once, I wish you could manage this during the school year. Because then, and so, well, I relate to that, and it seems not too big a stretch to say that at least in one area of our lives, at one point in our lives, we can identify with Calvin's attitude. I know those, and you do too, who tolerate a job and live for vacations and weekends, and those free times approach, as those free times approach the end, they wear themselves out, squeezing every opportunity for fun out of it. Or at church, it seems we catch ourselves living for the mountaintop experiences, choosing churches and ministries that provide more uh, mountaintop experience and miss the wonder of the day-to-day. -day. The ministry opportunities that are literally here and now, or right next door. What if I told you it was possible to achieve the exhilaration of God's presence in the day-to-day -day of your job, your church, your family, your life, and everything else? God has stated and shown that this is not only possible, it's his plan. It's his plan for you. See, let's start at the beginning. When God created man, and I'm not going to go through the whole um, beginning, um, but when God created man, he gave us everything we needed to, and desired to walk in perfect harmony with him, to walk with him every day in fellowship with him in every aspect of our life. 
Then sin came in the world and disrupted that fellowship, right? It disrupted that bond. It disrupted the whole plan. So he brought the law. The law was the Ten Commandments, and the temple and the priests were part of that. The law was all about what God is like. The law showed us God's standard, but also made it clear that man can't attain it on his own. The temple and priests were set up to mediate God's presence and then also atone for sin because sin was still in the world. With the law in place, the Old Testament folks looked forward to the coming Messiah to permanently atone for sin, release the grip of sin, and mediate the presence of God as he would be, he would be God. Then Jesus, God in the flesh, came. He was the presence of the God. He was God with us, Emmanuel. And he, was, he came as he was clearly prophesied to, but he was not at all what they expected. Jesus showed us God's power. He showed us his miracles over sin, disease, and death, and, well, the rest of the world. He showed us what God was like, merciful, loving, powerful, uncompromising, full of grace. He fulfilled the prophecies in the law and expanded on the law. With, in Matthew 5, there was the, the law says, but I say. The but I says were very important, and every one of them is important. We could study them all. We're not going to today. But they transformed the law into the gospel. The but I says were transforming the law into the gospel. The law showed the necessity of the gospel. If you don't know the law, you don't know, you will underestimate your need for the gospel. The more you know the law, the more you know your need for the gospel. And that was Jesus' main point with the but I says that he kept saying. Not only did he give us the gospel, the good news, but he showed us how to share it. He told us of the coming kingdom, the new heaven and new earth, but also that this kingdom is here and now, though often um, interrupted and marred by a fallen world, by sin. But through the gospel, we can start to live in the kingdom, now as ambassadors and adopted royalty into that kingdom. And we can play a role in expanding that kingdom throughout the world, just like Adam and Eve were supposed to do. When he told us about his kingdom, he used parables. I've really enjoyed digging into them and appreciate the opportunity to share with you today. If you remember from October, um, when we shared about parables before and Jeremy's message last week, the parable is a story alongside the truth of the gospel. Remember, the meaning is beneath the surface, just beneath the surface. Jeremy's message last week was not about grain bin construction or harvest management. It was about hoarding and about, about um, idolizing possessions of earth, the things of this earth, wealth and stuff. This week, I would like to look at the parable of the talents found in Matthew 25, 14 through 20. But before I do, let's look at the context of it. What are the circumstances and who's Jesus talking to in this parable? To do so, we have to go back to Matthew 21 and 22, where we have the triumphal entry. You remember the crucifixion is drawing near, right? After the... the um, Triumphal entry, there's cleansing of the temple. Jesus is in the temple confronting the Pharisees. And in the temple, he starts to speak in parables. As usual, the person or the group he was speaking to were represented in the parables. He's actually speaking to the disciples in front of the Pharisees, but he's speaking loud enough so everybody in the temple can hear him, right? So he's speaking to the, to the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, but he's doing it through the disciples, and he uses the parable of the two sons, the tenants, and the wedding feast. I think we did that one back in October. 
In chapter three, he's still speaking to the Sadducees and Pharisees, but it's not in parables anymore. It's pretty direct. He says, woe to you, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, hypocrites. He used words like that. Those aren't parables. Those are, those are saying what you are, you know, and what you've been. In chapter 24, he leaves the, the, the temple with the disciples and starts focusing them on the second coming. What's this, this is what's gonna happen. And he's using the things around him as, as an analogy. The temple will be torn down and rebuilt in three days. As an analogy, these aren't parables anymore. He's telling what's gonna happen to him in this world, but it's directly um, telling a direct analogies and, and relating it to what they can see. So then here we are in chapter 25. Jesus is still speaking to disciples, but not the masses, because it says Jesus spoke to the disciples privately. The masses are gone, the Pharisees and Sadducees are gone. He's speaking directly to disciples, and we have to know that when he's speaking directly to the disciples, he's speaking to us. We're his disciples, he's speaking to us. So when he gives a parable to disciples and tells them what's coming, he's speaking to us. It's important to know that. He's teaching the disciples about the coming kingdom, not just heaven and our afterlife, but living in the kingdom now and his coming kingdom to completion when he brings our earth into the kingdom. Chapter 25 starts with the parable of the foolish virgins. He goes through that one. Then our parable today. Starting in verse 14, the parable of the talents. If you found it, let's read it together or read it with me as I read it. For it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he who made five talents more. Um, excuse me, and, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug, the, dug, it, dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over month, much, and turn to the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with my own interest. The message paraphrase of this uh, verse 27 says, if you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? <laughs> Going on in verse 28. So take the talent from him, give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, will more will be given. 
and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 30, the message paraphrase. Get rid of it, this play it safe, and won't go out on a limb. So who's who in this parable? For it is the kingdom, it's the coming kingdom, and so it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to him his property. So the man, of the, 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 clearly the man is the master, Jesus. He's a man of wealth and power. He's getting ready to go on a journey. He's gonna be crucified. He's gonna be, um, then he's gonna you know, be resurrected and then he's gonna ascend again. So the master is going on a long journey. He's over the servants. His servants are his disciples, or if you'd rather, they're you or your church. The servants, remember at that time, were either indentured, they were working off a debt, or they were domestic or farm servants. They weren't paid much beyond their room and board. In this case, the talent was of silver or gold. If it were gold, it's estimated that a talent of gold is $1.5 million. It would be about um, 35 years wages to a mid, mid, uh, you know, middle-income person. For a servant, it'd be infinite income, right? A servant won't make that much in, in several lifetimes. A servant can never earn or deserve or would ever even see in his lifetime one talent. So when the master bestowed his talents to them, it was not theirs. They couldn't earn it. Two things they clearly should not have done were to use it for their own benefit or hoard it or waste it. Jeremy shared that last week. He would receive the five talents when at once, it says in verse 16, and traded them. He turned them over immediately. So it's not incorrect, and a lot of sermons, articles, and blogs go a little beneath the surface and present to you that the talents, in this case, are your gifts. Talents, spiritual gifts, you know, actual talents, the things you can do, spiritual gifts, or your finances, or both. Then the natural follow is that don't waste them. Don't sit on them. You know, we learned this early in our, in our Christian walk, right? We learned, hide it under a bushel. No, you know, it's, it, that's a very, very Christian concept. It's a very basic Christian concept is we don't hide our gifts. We don't hide our blessings. Our response then is we set out to find, define which gifts we have and which programs we should give our money to, right? And this is not wrong, but if we go a little more beneath the surface, there could be more there, what if the message of the talents is this? It's a little stronger than this, that we should make the most of every aspect of our life where God has blessed us. So let's look at a couple areas where God blesses us. Um, we're on slide nine. Um, with this parable, the most popular thing to tie to it is our money, right, our wealth. And I want to tell you right now, this is not a sermon about tithing, okay? But this parable is based on money or currency. That's the context of this parable, and also but, Jesus talks about money a lot. I don't know if also but's a proper term to use from the pulpit, but I used it. Um, also, Jesus talks about money a lot because he knows what a trap it is for us. I mean, he knows that if you want to know what a person's values and passions are, look at where they spend or don't spend their money, right? Keith Schwartz used to say when he was here, people vote with their money. Right? If they're passionate about church, they'll, they'll invest in church. You know, if they're passionate about what's going on, they'll invest in it. He said that about ministries and about other things too. And God's word's full of warnings about money. Hebrews 13.5. 
Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What he's saying, this is Dave Cook paraphrase, not um, Eugene Peterson's. Put your energy in me. I'm eternal. The things of this world, your money are not eternal. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Pangs are sharp pains or discomforts. It's not on your screen, but Proverbs 13.11. Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Jeremy touched on this last week, but... You know, I saw a documentary one time of people five years after they won the lottery. Some of these people won triple-digit million dollars, okay, hundreds of millions of dollars. And in five years, they were destitute. The majority of them were destitute. They were worse off than they were before they won the money, and their life was miserable. Their marriages were done. Their families were scattered. We talked about um, last week, too, you know, people that inherit a bunch of money um, and, and how it ruins their life, how it can ruin their lives. And this this proverb um, certainly shares that. My favorite verse on this topic is Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the reason I like this verse is because it's getting to the the root of the problem, right? I mean, the money, not one of those things says money is evil, does it? It doesn't say wealth and privilege are evil. It says the love of them is, the heart of it is. It's okay to expect to be paid justly for your skills in an occupation. It's fine to aspire to have a good, comfortable, reliable vehicle um, that fits your needs and your lifestyle. It's okay to want to have a safe home to raise your family in. But with salary, possessions, and social status, we start to lose the godly perspective when we compare because that reveals our heart, right? I remember multiple times in my career I've been really just fine with my salary. I've been content with my salary till I found out what something that something that found out what someone that does at least what I do or a little less makes, right? And all of a sudden I'm not happy with what I make anymore. Or I find out what one of my superiors that tells me what to do and I do all the work, how much more he makes than me. If I find those things out, I'm never content anymore because I start to compare. In 2013, I brought a brand new F-150 Lariat. Oh, man, it was way more truck than I could afford, and we got it paid off in time, um, and it, but it had way more on it than, than I needed, but I liked it all, right? It's got heated leather seats. It's got a pretty dashboard. It rides nice. It's automatic four-wheel, you know, you can just, just turn a button. It's in four-wheel drive. This, this vehicle was all I needed, and we paid it off. It's got 280,000 miles on it now, and it's ours. It's mine. No, it's ties. But anyway, that's a different story. But, but the point is this, is this. That was all the truck I needed. I was completely content driving that truck, even with 280,000 miles on it. I still have a high-mileage truck, and I'm happy in it. Until I'm out in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I go to National Rent-A-Car. My company rents enough cars, so they kind of give us our choice what we want to drive when we, when we check out our car. Guy says, we got in a brand-new F-150. You want to drive it? This is in 2021. It's a 2021 F-150 platinum. I was completely happy with my truck when I drove to the airport. I get in that platinum. It's like sitting in your living room chair going down the road. It's heated and cooled seat. Do you know you can induce hypothermia by turning the cooler up too high? 
You're cooling it where it matters, right? You're all right, yeah, so, so you, and, and, then, and oh, you open the door, and the, the step rail comes out automatically, you know, under, under the thing. I was no longer happy with my truck, because I was comparing. I got back to reality when I saw what those cost. <laughs> Another area God blesses us is our spiritual gifts and abilities, the things we use for him, right, for his kingdom. Go back to Matthew 25, 15, our verse. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. And look at this next phrase, to each according to his ability. See, the main message here is each one of the servants was gifted differently. Look at it as if they had different size ministries, if you want. But each one did, what each one did was no or more or less important to the master. Do you remember what he said to the guy that made him five talents, the servant that made him five talents, and the one that made him two talents? He said the exact same thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've taken what I've given you, and you've multiplied it. Welcome to the kingdom. This topic crosses over a little bit with the Welk section, but it's a little different. When God calls us to ministry, we need to go like the good servant did and immediately multiply it. What if, and the text doesn't say this, so we don't know, the servant who got one was disgruntled because of getting only one talent, remember? Remember, it was a million dollars, right? But he only got one talent. The other one's got two and five. What if he was disgruntled because it was a smaller ministry? It was equally important to the master, apparently, What if servant number three buried the money in disgust because he coveted a bigger, more high-profile ministry or gift than the other two had? Jesus and later Paul talk about this comparison thing a lot. John 21, 21, if you remember, back in Easter, I gave the, the Easter sermon, and I couldn't figure out which part of the book of John to present to you, so I did the whole book in, in I think, record time, but I've been told not, that wasn't quite the record people wanted me to achieve. But I went through the whole book of John, and if you get toward the end of John, in John 21, okay, Jesus is, um, talk, is it, so Jesus has been crucified, he's resurrected, he's appeared to the masses, he's appeared to uh, the disciples at different times. Now he's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that's the one where Peter jumped out of the boat and swam to him, and he's cooking breakfast for them on the shore. And they're all together having breakfast. And that's when Peter and Jesus went through the, do you love me? And Jesus said, yes, you, you know I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. And he was, and he was pulling them through a crisis of, of belief, right? And at the end of it, the last time Jesus asked him, the third time Jesus asked him, do you love me? Peter gets upset. You know I love you. And he completely surrendered to him. He said, you know I love you. I know I denied you three times. I know I, you know, uh, you know looked at the waves instead of you and, and, and sank in the water. I know all this. I know I've fallen short. But now I'm going to follow you. Now I, you know I love you. You know I'm com- fully committed to you. And Jesus says to him, paraphrased, well, that's good. Because you're going to, and, and he tells him cryptically, you're going to be led away. And you're going to be tortured and crucified just like I was. And does Peter say, I know, but I'm on board now, right? He doesn't say that. He points to John and goes, what about him? What about him? Is he going to be tortured too? Is he going to be crucified too? Jesus said to him, if my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. You don't compare. You follow me with what what I'm leading you to. Remember, each according to his abilities, it says in in our text. 
Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. This may be clear enough, but if you look at the New Living Translation of that same passage, it says, starting in verse 12, Oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say we're as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. But they are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. How ignorant. (laughs) That's a little more direct. I get that. The Bible says we're all gifted differently, but we're to be unified here, and there's no room to compare. Um, the book of Ephesians is a fascinating book. Paul wrote you know, several letters to several churches. The book of Ephesians is the only one that's not correcting things. The book of Ephesians is telling the church how to get going right from the start. It's what it is. And the first half of the book of Ephesians talks about who God is. What are the attributes of God? And then, the, the, then in, verse four, in chapter 4, he translates over to what you're supposed to do about it, basically. How you walk in that amazing things that God is. And so in Ephesians 4, he's talking about unity in the body of the Christ. After he's just told how God is the God of unity, how the God of grace and full of mercy. So they, he says in, in chapter 4, um, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. I can almost hear him cadence this out to him. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Why would it be this way? Looking, starting in verse 11, jumping down to verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain a unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. You can't be unified if you keep comparing. That's, my, I, that's me, not Paul. God gave you the exact set of gifts you can handle and will be effective for your part in building up the body. God has equipped you uniquely to build up the body as only you can. So which of the gifts is most important? You can answer. Which of the gifts is most important? All of them. Thank you. Why would we desire someone else? This Johnny Carson goes, is this on? Is this on? Um, why, would, why would we desire someone else's gifts or talents? You ever try to achieve a gift that's clearly not yours? I used to be, wish I could be musical. Uh, to quote an irreverent comedian, I still do, but I used to too. <laughs> um, I, I love music, you know, but it's been tested and proven, um, right, Rachel, right, Phil, that, that I'm not gifted to reproduce it in voice or instrument. Instrument's no one's fault. My parents wasted thousands of dollars on guitar lessons over the years. And I, I took guitar lesson after guitar lesson. I, took a, I had a classical teacher. I had a folk teacher. I had, and, and I had music teacher from school that thought he had, could do something with me. And I took years and years of, 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 of guitar lessons. And all I could learn to do was look at the note on the page and play the note on the, on the string. I couldn't learn chords. I couldn't learn to hear the music and reproduce it. All I could learn to do is look at a note and play the note. 
That doesn't make for very interesting guitar playing, does it? I thought when I moved to Missouri, if I could learn the banjo, which is clicking, I could be invited out a lot. Well, I took banjo lessons. This was at my own expense for two years. And the thing with banjo is it is individual notes. You put picks on all the fingers, but they have like five notes that lead to the note and then four notes that lead from the note to the next note. They kind of roll from note to note, and all those rolls that you do beforehand have as much to do with the sound as the note. You can't learn that looking at the note on the page and playing the note on the guitar or on the banjo. So I donated my banjo to someone more gifted. <laughs> my voice restriction, my able to reproduce um, noise, uh, you know, music and voice, I can blame on my beloved late mother, and here's why. Um, when I was uh, young, I won't tell you how young, they bought a brand new 68 Buick LeSabre, beautiful car, really nice riding, but the, the sound system options in, a, in 68 were, not, were somewhat limited. But my dad was cutting edge, so he took the AM radio and took the wires and got an aftermarket 8-track player. Do any of you know what an 8-track is? An eight, Judy, you do. But, um, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, it's, like a, it's like a cassette deck that's the size of an 8x8 eight eight brownie pan, all right? And you, you shove it in, and you can, hear the, you can hear the motor running in the 8-track, and it plays. Mom had a collection of 8-tracks, because I know it took up what, where one person could have sat in that car. She had a whole collection of 8-tracks, but the one she played over and over and over again for us while we were on our way to school, when we were on our way to football practice, when we were on our way there, was Tijuana Brass. Do you learn vocals from the Tijuana Brass? No. So none of her kids can sing, and that's why. So we can do the trumpet sound. You know, I can do Lonely Bull and make a trumpet sound, but I can't sing. So that's enough of that. All right, so have you thought about how God's gifted you uniquely? And are you still chasing gifts that aren't yours? I'm clearly not gifted to lead music. This can also apply to your calling, your ministry, even the church you go to. And as previously mentioned, your, your, your wealth, your income. We aren't supposed to hide them. We're not supposed to sit on them. We darn sure shouldn't compare. I think we're clear on that now. So what do we do with them? As my term title, sermon title says, we're called to make the most of them. To make the most of them, we have to move forward with a heart that we don't deserve it. It's not ours. If we didn't have it, we would still love God and seek his presence. And the results of this heart, of this, this approach, is we're too grateful to compare. We'll get closer to Jesus when we're operating in our areas of blessing and pointing others to the kingdom. No matter what those around us are doing. But how do we get started with this? I mean, we've been comparing our whole lives. We're bombarded every day with media that tells us our cars, our bodies, our spouses, our vacations, our houses, our furniture, our diet aren't good enough, right? The beer we drink isn't good enough. Better Homes and Gardens is the most popular magazine for decades. Better than what? Better than yours, right? We even hear a lot from pulpits how our giving, our prayer life, our dedication, not Jeremy, but other pastors, it's not as good as what? as other churches I've been to, or as it should be, right? So what do we do? What do we do? If everything's not good enough and we're not supposed to compare, what's the standard, right? Well, as I was studying the best response to what we're given or blessed with, I was led with a, in a self-led short course in biblical Hebrew sacrifice. 
and the biblical Hebrew sacrifice in, in biblical times, the Hebrews, is not a random ritual. It's not just morbid behavior. Every aspect of it points to the coming Messiah and what he expects our position on the talents, on our blessings, to be. What he has blessed us with is what he wants us to, what he wants us to do with, is what he wants us to sacrifice with. It's way too big a topic to, to talk about today in detail, but in general... As we understand in modern times the word sacrifice, we use it a little bit softer than what it's really meant for. We use sacrifice to mean somebody, something given up for a greater cause, right? The gentleman who spoke last night, Alex Berger, who spoke last night, spoke about sacrifice and serving in special forces, in the military, and being deployed. Um, you hear about team sacrificing to make the championship, or Olympic athletes sacrificing. They give up something for the greater good. Really, it goes deeper than that. Um, when the ancient Israelites practiced what we call sacrifice, it's better to think of giving over rather than giving up, okay? Um, sacrifice comes from the Latin word sacrificare, which means simply to make sacred. You permanently transfer something from the human to common into the realm of the divine or the supernatural, the sacred realm, Right? The transfer of offerings from the common to the sacred, from human beings to God. The Hebrew noun term for sacrifice is korban. It means something brought forward, like an offering. So when they performed sacrifices, the ancient Israelites gave over to God some of what they believed God had blessed them with. For poorer people, they used pigeons or, or something, small birds, uh, farmers, brought their, the first harvest of their grain forward. Guys that own wineries, whatever they're called, brought forth their first wine and poured it on the altar. Uh, richer, more, more, more wealthy people, more well-blessed people, financially well-blessed people brought uh, choice sheep, un unblemished lambs, or, or oxen even so. Their gift reflected their their, their, their status, their, their, their blessings. But whatever they brought forward, they were expressing their close, close relationship with God and turning it over, offering it over to him, the source of it. In the Hebrew Torah, sacrifice always involves transformation then. What happens next is transformation. It transfers from the earthly to the heavenly. One way to transfer something as a sacrifice is to destroy it. They, if it's an animal, they bind it to the altar and cut it up, basically. Not basically, that's what they did. Um, they, if it's grain, they pour it out on the altar. If it's liquid, like wine, they pour it out on the altar. Then they light it on fire, and the smoke raises up. It's being detached from the earthly and risen up to the heavenly. The destruction removes the sacrifice from the ordinary realm and makes it into a transcendent one. Leviticus tells us that God received from a sacrifice what God received from the sacrifice was the smoke of the burning as a pleasing aroma to him. The New Testament is full of symbolism relating, relating back to this. Think about the woman pouring precious oil on Jesus. Think about the torture before the crucifixion and the crucifixion itself and then the ascension. By receiving the smoke, the transformed sacrifice, God enjoyed his fellowship with, the human, with human beings. Can you make this transition with me to, to our parable? There's no choice here, really. The master's going to return, unless we go to him first, 
And there's a time of accountability. If we go back to our parable, slide 22, Mel, if you're there. Mel knows that I'll lose my place if I advance my own slide, so she keeps up with me very well. I really appreciate her. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. You blessed me with five talents. I've made five talents more by turning them over, right? His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much and earn the joy of, my, of your master, my kingdom, that is. The one with the two talents was kind of the same deal. No, it was exactly the same deal. But then he spoke to the one in um, the next slide. He also, then he talks about the one that received the one talent. And he said, Master, I knew you'd be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. And listen to what the master said to him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. See, the problem was, and, and, and the master's getting at this with him, his heart was not to serve the master. It was to avoid him in a sense, right? He buried it in the ground because he didn't want to deal with it. He didn't want to deal with the blessing he was given he didn't offer it over to be transformed. He permanently bound it to the earth so it couldn't be transformed by burying it. And it's the heart that matters. I mean, it's the heart that matters to the master, right? Did the master really need the interest on that one talent? Those other two guys made him seven talents in profit. The, the interest that that guy would make on one talent, did that really matter to the master's wealth in any way? It wasn't, it wasn't what happened that counted. It was the heart in what happened. And they said, cast the worthless servant in the outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This isn't a losing your salvation thing. It's a choosing to live outside the kingdom thing. The servant didn't want to serve the master. He wanted to hover outside the kingdom. If you don't want the master, you don't want the kingdom. How do we know whether, we not, whether or not we want the master? Later in the same chapter, this isn't on your screen, um, and this isn't a parable. This is Jesus telling us what's going to happen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Does that sound familiar? What he said to the first two um, servants? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we do all these things? And he said truly to them, um, I say to you, as you did to the least of these, these my brothers, you did it for me. You used your blessings to further my kingdom, is what he's saying. The one-talent people will come before him in the same way, and he'll say the same thing to them, only in the negative. And they'll say to him, when did we not feed you? When did we not clothe you? When did we not come and visit you? Then he'll answer them, saying, truly, I say to you, as you did or did not do to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment outside the kingdom by their choice. And the righteous will enter into eternal life in the kingdom. If you are using his gifts, his blessings to serve others, 
and furthering his kingdom, you're offering them up in very biblical fashion, as we're commanded to. So clearly, we need to take what God has blessed us with and sacrifice it all, lay it all down, give it over to be uh, transformed to the sacred. But how do we do this? I don't want to see Franklin cutting up his guitar and the pieces up here. I don't think Jeremy wants um, fragrant offering of smoke raising up from Fellowship Hall, you know, more than likely. You can't bind your family members to the altar, right? Though you may have been tempted to. It seems to me this could only be accomplished on the altar of prayer. But honestly, most of my life, I've not put prayer in the right place. I hear a sermon like this and start reading books on prayer, listening to teachings on prayer. My prayer life's come a long way, don't get me wrong. But listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, 26. I don't think this is on your overhead. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He's talking about the stars in the heavens. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might and because of his strong power, not one is missing. The people of God in Isaiah's time couldn't see God because they were focused on their idols. But Isaiah made them look up at the heavens that he made, that, that he made and made them begin to use their power to picture correctly. If we're children of God, when we look at our children, grandchildren, when we see the mountains, lakes, glaciers, sunrises and sunsets, when we hear worship music, we should focus on God and see the power and mighty of God in that. But instead, is your mind focused on the face of an idol? Is the idol yourself? Is it your work? Is it your idea of what a servant should be? Or maybe your experience of salvation and sanctification. How many people stand up in front of a group and tell their testimony every time they get the chance? It's not wrong, but we've got to move on, right? We've got to move on to what God's doing next in our lives. We have to start prayer by imagining we're putting ourselves before God and pouring ourselves on the altar before him. It means that this, all the strength of our body, soul, and spirit, talents, and resources are now for God's purposes alone. When we don't, our prayers get lame. It is actually more important to be broken bread and poured out wine in prayer than it is in your acts of service. Praying for this will mean we want to be one with Jesus so that what controlled him will control us. Jesus prayed that we might be one with him as he is one with the Father. He prayed that for us. He's praying that for you right now. John 17, 21 to 23 says that. With it comes a freedom and a separation from everything which is not, uh, not of him or not like him. If you get an idea of what you're, you're, if you want to get an idea, if you're even close to this, play back in your head your last several prayers. Ask God, as in Psalm 139, to search you and point out the flaws in your prayer life. I have to give you a Dave Cook parable here. Maybe it's more of an analogy, but it's a recent true story. Last week after church, Alice and I went to the plaza to meet friends, um, and we, 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 ate out, we ate a nice dinner out, late, late lunch out, and we parted ways with our friends, and we're on our way back to the, my, my vehicle, and this homeless couple confronted us. Um, they weren't threatening, I mean, but they, they needed money, right? And They were a homeless couple, but they, they, they said they needed money for rent, which kind of I thought was a contradiction, but anyway... They're both talking different stories, a husband and wife. They were both talking different stories, but there's no doubt they were in need, okay? I gave them money. It wasn't loose change or a dollar. 
Let's just say it was a weak tithe of our dinner bill that night, okay? The woman kept stating their troubles over and over again, and they grew in, in magnitude as she spoke. As soon as I gave the man the money, he, he broke into an auction. Jason, I, I was going to have you come up there and do this part. But he goes, put another 20 with it, put another 20 with it. He started auctioning with me, right? And then Allison, he's going back and forth trying to get us both to bid and, and hand them money separately. You know, he even told, clearly I had not met the minimum contribution, whatever that was. And he, told, he even told me the goal of the capital campaign, it was $80 a day. He was telling me that my gift, my blessing to him, what it should be. <laughs> I walked away angry. This is what's going through my head. He didn't earn it. He didn't provide me with anything. He didn't want to know me. He just wanted, to, wanted me to give him money. He didn't want to know me. He didn't ask for my guidance. He just wanted to get all he could from me. I gave it to him. No strings attached. Who's he to say it's not enough? If his heart was right, he'd give me back 10% to give to somebody else, right? If he'd listen to the sermons. What am I, some kind of ATM? Then I started playing the mental recording of my recent prayers to God. Guess what I heard? Do I have to tell you what I heard? As you've done for the least of these, I'm not saying you have to empty your wallet every time a homeless person encounters you. But God will put some sorry people in your path that remind you of how you are to him. Okay? Do I need to say that again? God will put some sorry people in your path to remind you of how you are to him. Dave? Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I can't get away from this pouring out concept. It's so against my nature. As many of you know, I've said it from here before, I read Oswald Chambers every morning to kick off my devotion time. Done it for years. Funny how when you have the retention rate I do, you could read it next year and say, I've never read that before. But it's a year apart. Give me a break. All right. Those of you familiar with his writing probably notice my less intelligent verbiage and cadence that loose resembles his. Therefore, when I was preparing this message and I woke up February 6th and read his piece for that day, I felt I should close with it. Are you ready to be poured out as an offering? Um, and he quotes Timothy 4.6. I'm, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, the words of Paul. It says, are you ready to be poured out as, a, as an offering? It is an act of your will, not your emotions. Tell God you are ready to be offered as a sacrifice for him, and then accept the consequences as they come without any complaints, in spite of what God may send your way. God sends you through a crisis in private where no other person can help you. From the outside, your life may appear to be the same, but the difference is taking place in your will. Once you've experienced the crisis in your will, you will take no thought for the cost when it begins to affect you externally. If you don't deal with God on the level of your will first, the result will only be to arouse sympathy for yourself. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the altar, to the horns of the altar, Psalm 118, 27. You must be willing to be placed on the altar and go through the fire, willing to experience what the altar represents, burning, purification, separation for only one purpose, the elimination of every desire and affection not grounded in or directed toward God. But you don't eliminate it. God does. 
You bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar and see to it that you don't wallow in self-pity once the fire begins. After you've gone through the fire, there will be nothing that will be able to trouble or depress you. When another crisis arises, you will realize that things can't touch you the way they used to. What fire lies ahead in your life? Tell God you're ready to be poured out as an offering, and God will prove himself to be all you ever dreamed he would be. End quote. So are we ready to sacrifice our blessings, destroy their earthly limitations, transform them to the sacred? I can't praise this for you, but I'm going to lead you in a prayer. As I do, picture each element of your life being bounded to the altar, set apart, and its earthly attachment destroyed by fire and a smoke rising up before the throne. God breathing it in, and it is transformed from the earthly to the godly as we pray together.